You're listening to The World According to George. This uninspired, puffy Midwestern man is looking for something more as he moves through life in his 30s. And welcome to The World According to George. I'm your host, uh, George Thomas, and this episode of WAG is being broadcast from Granger, Indiana. My uh, guest today is Khalil Mata, who's our who was our in-country guide in Lebanon, but also lives in the States. Uh, and before I start, Khalil, I just wanted to uh, say that without you and George Abu Khalid, uh, who was our other guide and who flew over with us, um, the trip we just had you know, wouldn't have happened without you. More importantly, it wouldn't have been special in any way. I thought you guys both went above and beyond. You didn't miss a beat. You met us at the airport when we arrived in Beirut. Uh, you were there to see us off at the airport when we left. You connected us to the country in a sentimental way, um, which is beyond what a regular guide would do. And I don't think we'll ever forget that. Um, and then also, I had nothing to do with finding you or organizing any of it. Um, as you might have learned, I handle most of the family stuff. And I'm kind of uh, a control freak, but I'm sure you wouldn't think that. Um, but that meant you know, I had not I didn't have to worry about it either. Um, so it was a lot less stressful in that way. So I just wanted to say before we started, thank you for all the time you spent with us. Uh, and we love you and think you're great and just really appreciate the time and care you took it didn't go unnoticed so really appreciate what you did george it was really an absolute pleasure uh, it's always fun to show off uh, lebanon to my guests to our guests people have misconceptions about it and so it's nice to kind of put things in um in our own perspective to look at it from the point of view of the uh, indigenous people that live there and it's always fun to kind of see the expressions on people's faces when they find out that this is a, a neat place. It's a fun place to visit. It's uh, it's nice to spend time and it's extremely safe. I knew that when you first arrived, you had lots of concerns about safety. And I think I was uh, really surprised that by the end, you were exploring the whole country on your own and you wanted to kick me out and just do it all by yourself. And I think that's the whole idea. I'm so glad that you had lots of fun and I can't wait to do it again with you guys. I never felt unsafe. And, and I said that last week, too. Um, the city just felt like another city to me. You know, that there was some military around a little bit, but that area we had dinner several times and where that coffee shop that we met you, you know, it felt very safe to me. And it felt very free. The whole it didn't there was no restrictions, it seems like on Internet or free speech. It was just very open. So and that's a credit to the country. Well, George, this is a, a, a terrible misconception that people have about Lebanon. Uh, they all think that it is... You think uh, it's just Americans or everybody? I think Americans more than everybody else, yeah. but it's a misconception in general. Uh, as you uh, saw firsthand when you visited, yes, we might have some, you know, uh, uh, trouble once in a while, uh, uh, more security trouble than anything else, meaning that, you know, uh, some uh, violence perpetrated by a terrorist or some group that has uh, uh, grievances with the government or or, or uh, with Israel, which we'll talk about later. Uh, but for the most part, uh, as I told you, um, uh, we feel extremely safe. There aren't the kind of crime that you kind of normally experience in a big city. So uh, you don't have uh, the robberies, the violence, the uh, random killings uh, that that uh, you experience in a, in, a, uh, in a in a normal city. So uh, when my daughter moved back to Lebanon from Chicago, she lived in Chicago for nearly five years. Uh, 
she uh, basically could, could take a taxi by herself, you know, at two or three in the morning and feel very safe. In Chicago, when she used to walk between work and, and her uh, condo, uh, basically she uh, stayed on the phone with me to feel, uh, to kind of get some secure, some some safety and in, yeah. in, in, in having somebody, as if somebody is accompanying her. So it's a different kind of, you know, uh, uh, concern about about uh, safety. So then, then you'll find here. Yeah. Well, what is the reason though? Because Lebanon, I, to, to me, or you, I think you said this. They don't really have police, do they? So in the U.S., we have so much police. Chicago, it has a, it's no other problem with their prosecutor, and they they invite the crime. They could fix it overnight if they wanted to. But why is this? Why are the states more dangerous in the crime way? When we have all this police, Lebanon has none, and you guys don't have the same problems we do. What, what, where, why would that be? Wow, that's a good question. I don't know if I'm an expert on this. Uh, I think, um, well, at least on the Lebanon side. Uh, yeah, we had the civil war that went on for nearly 20 years, and um, during that period, the government was literally non-existent, and uh, because of that, people took care of each other. And so um, there is a strong uh, family types. There are strong neighborhoods, uh, people in the neighborhood. Everybody knows each other. So it's very difficult for somebody to uh, do something uh, uh, illegal or do violence to somebody without everybody noticing it. And so uh, 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 people take care of their own. And I think that there is no culture that you deal with your differences and issues by uh, through violence. Uh, now, as you, you know, I mean, part of uh, the violence that occurs uh, in this country might be caused by maybe poverty or, or, or uh, uh, not knowing how to deal with things other than through violent means. Over there, as we get more and more people, uh, because we've had severe economic issues lately, uh, as people get poorer, I don't know what's going to happen. I cannot, you know, judge that at this particular point in time. But uh, uh, unfortunately, you know, uh, violence uh, exists and has to be dealt with in different ways and different cultures deal with it differently. And maybe, you know, also it has to do with the fact that, you know, if you, it's looked very down upon you if you kind of deal with your problems violently and the punishment is very uh, severe uh, uh, either uh, on the part of the relatives or you know if, if somebody hurts somebody else then you know uh, the relatives will come and you know exert their own revenge through uh, vengeance um, and uh, and the government if you go to any one of those prisons uh, that exist you know in third world countries it's not a fun place to be in so people yeah. kind of avoid you know getting caught and, and I don't want to you know experience that are you saying the community would do the punishment? Yeah, they would. Yeah. Okay, it's, you would. I mean, wouldn't be an authority, though. It depends. It, it, it depends. I think that, you know, if you're... Uh, uh, there is some police that exist. There is some semblance of a government, but they don't have too much authority, especially on the people that are well-connected. And so yeah. if the violence occurs by somebody that is... Uh, uh, who knows somebody in government, who knows a political leader, who knows somebody in the army, then, you know, they might get away with it uh, in terms of getting a formal punishment. Uh, but they always risk being punished by those that know the victim. They know, yeah. 
Okay. So, so you were born in Lebanon, right. right? Where in Lebanon were you born? I was uh, born in a small village uh, that you visited uh, around uh, two weeks ago called Pamdun. Oh, yeah. And Pamdun so is... Uh, where your home is is where you were born. Exactly. Okay. Except I didn't live in the home that you visited. I right. went in my grandfather's home. And that was destroyed in the civil war. And Pamdun is around 20 miles from Beirut. Uh, it is around... Um, it's in the mountains. And so it's around uh, 3,500 feet above sea level. Uh, and uh, it's a very dry mountainside. It overlooks the Mediterranean and overlooks Beirut also. And um, the weather is phenomenal, particularly in the summer. Uh, the temperature will be in the mid-70s to low 80s uh, during the summer months. And in winter, it will be in the high 40s, uh, low 50s. So it's a very moderate weather. It's very dry. It's dry nine months of the year and it rains only three months of the year. So, And when it rains in the mountains and where I live, it'll probably be in the form of snow. So not too many people realize that in Lebanon, we actually have mountains that have a lot of snow in them. Yeah. And one of the things we pride ourselves on is that uh, you can, uh, in the winter months, uh, literally swim in the sea uh, in the Mediterranean and in maybe an hour or less be in the mountains and ski. And there are several ski resorts in Lebanon. Wouldn't have guessed that. Um, it doesn't seem that far from Beirut, really. So, no. yeah. So you lived in Lebanon for how long uh, until you moved to, like, Indiana? Okay. I uh, basically, uh, I left Lebanon at the age of 20. On my 20th birthday, I left Lebanon. Uh, I had spent uh, the first two years uh, of college at the American University of Beirut, and then the situation in Lebanon got too violent for my parents' taste, and they literally put me on a plane and sent me abroad to finish my studies. I came here to West Virginia Tech and studied, uh, finished my bachelor's degree in computer science, and then came to Notre Dame, and uh, I've been here since then. I spent around 36 years at Notre Dame, uh, three of them as a PhD student, and then afterwards, I taught for over 30 years in the College of Business at Notre Dame, teaching computers. And you were the, weren't you the chair of, of, a, of a program there? What was that program? I was the acting department head for two years in the early 90s uh, of the management department. And I was the director of the management information systems program for around, uh, I would say, nearly 20 years in yeah. the department. So uh, uh, basically the management information systems uh, group uh, within the ma were within the management department. So we were a subset of the management department. Did you, you always wanted to be a teacher? Professor? Absolutely not. Okay. I, I kind of stumbled into it. Uh, as a matter of fact, when I first grew, I was growing up, I wanted to be uh, a, a pilot uh, out of all things, uh, but my eyesight wasn't perfect, so they didn't uh, allow me to get, enter pilot school. Then I wanted to be an army officer and my parents wouldn't hear of it. And so they sent me to this one. My parents insisted I go to the States, uh, given that they've been saving all their money to get my brother and I educated. They insisted that we come here and either do engineering or medicine. Uh, well, I did neither one. I did computer science, but actually my PhD is in uh, industrial engineering. So partly, you know, they achieved their dreams of me, you know, succeeding here. So, yeah, I would say Notre Dame, I mean, that's a major institution to be the chair of a program there. I mean, you got to be 
you gotta have something between your ears, huh? Uh, I I'd like to think that I was lucky. Okay. Right. You're also very smart, but <laughs> um, do you? I know you speak fluent Arabic in addition, of course, to English. Do you speak any other languages? I speak passable French, and I'm sure that all all my friends that are hearing this are gonna laugh their heads off because my French is terrible, but I can understand French. Yeah. And how many months of the year do you spend in Lebanon? Uh, I would say I spend uh, the majority of my year over there, probably between seven and eight months of the year are in Lebanon. Around three months are in the States, so I make it a point to come here twice a year, usually in the fall and in the spring, and to visit my grandkids that live here. And then I spend one month in Egypt, in Sharm Sheikh, where my daughter lives with her, with my grandson. Will you eventually live in Lebanon full-time as you age? Uh, I... I already old, by the way. You don't know that because oh, you can't see me. You know, I'm just talking to your audience. Yes. Yeah, they don't know. Uh, you don't drink think, alcohol. No, I don't drink alcohol. Not That's because true. I don't have to. You know. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. My dad used to have a a glass of whiskey every evening, and that seemed to work for him. How long I don't. Uh, till he was seventy, he okay. yeah, he's just uh, uh, he didn't die of natural causes. So you know. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, he died in a violent thing. Well, yeah. You, no, it's fine. I, you know, it's okay. I, uh, I'll, uh, you know, my uh, in 1982, my um, as I finished my, it was during the Civil War, yeah. But in 1982, when I finished my PhD, I basically um, uh, received news. I was woken up one evening that my my dad was killed. And he was killed uh, during the Israeli invasion of Lebanon. That's the year when the Israelis came into Lebanon to get rid of the PLO. It seems every so often we have these incursions. And was that some kind of terrorist group or just they didn't like the PLO? Yeah. uh, Well, let's, you know, make sure that we understand, you know, put the terms correctly. Uh, The PLO is the Palestinian Liberation Organization. And uh, it's not like Hezbollah or Hamas today. Well, I mean, they were there, Hezbollah and Hamas of the time, okay. at that time. But I wanted to make the point that, you know, what people in the West or in the United States would perceive as a terrorist group, a people in, in the region might might consider them to be freedom fighters. So right. a freedom fighter for one, you know, uh, society might end up being a terrorist group for another society, depending yeah. on your perception and where you're looking at things at. Right. Okay. So, uh, and we can talk about this more, but, you know, uh, the Israelis, when they invaded Lebanon to go back to what happened to my father, yeah. uh, they basically, there was a, a battle uh, in in our village, and they dropped some cluster bombs there. And around a month after they um, the battle has was done and over and so forth, my dad was watering some trees in the backyard, and it must be that the hose touched one of the cluster bombs and it exploded in him. So this is so he 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 died not in terms of you know as as a function of or or as a result of direct fighting. He died you know a month yeah. afterwards yeah. from a bomb that was left over. Right. And I always hear that people, they're really not, cluster bombs are obviously a huge danger to civilians and we don't want to use, we use them today, I guess, but you really don't want to be using them because of what happened to your father. Exactly. Uh, 
if you know if i had been a a us citizen at the time uh, i probably would have you know uh, uh, been more vocal and maybe even had a lawsuit against you know uh, the sales of of cluster bombs to to uh, other countries uh, i hear today that they're selling them to ukraine and the problem that you're yeah. you're having is that you know even today uh, so 1982 till today that's 41 years ago uh, they dropped these bombs and until today we find some of them left over in the fields and so and there and there are kids that are playing out there and they look innocuous enough that people end up touching them and when they do you know they most of them are not operative anymore but you know every once in a while you hear that uh, uh, somebody had a bomb explode in them now fortunately most of the people that are that have been injured and not killed my father was unlucky at the time when yeah. that happened yeah but yeah so the problem is not that you know they're used as part of a military operation and then we're over it's something that might last you know many generations yeah. yeah and very difficult to pick up yeah well i'm sorry to hear that that was um i was just an innocent citizen and he i guess the yeah the results of war awful yeah i mean this is what people don't uh, can't relate to and that's you know when you have fighting uh, i would say as much as 90 percent of the people that die get killed get maimed are civilians People had nothing to do with the war, either one way or the other. Okay, and that's the sad part. People that you know uh, uh, that had you know uh, that were minding their own business, uh, that uh, want to have. I mean, people all over the world want to have exactly the same things as we do in this country. They want to have a better future for their children. They want to get them educated. They want to put good food on the table. They want to have shelter. They want to have a good roof over your head. I mean, this is what people want in this world, yeah. uh, whether they're Everywhere. poor, rich, everywhere in the world. And uh, and because they're at the wrong place at the wrong time, they get punished or or, or become casualties of, of war. Uh, they become uh, uh, collateral damage. Yeah. Which you, you don't want any civilian to die from this, but of course, people do, and and you know America is of you know not is someone that's always involved in some kind of war. It seems like, and there's always people that are dying, but people in the U.S. don't really know. We're just kind of fat and happy over here, and we don't ever experience any kind of war, at least on our soil. So it's hard to, to have an American understand any of that. Well, I think you 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 kind of put your finger on it when you said we haven't had any wars on our soil. Yeah. And I think that's the key. Right. Uh, so we've been involved in many wars, you know, whether okay. it is, you know, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, etc. And these are major wars yeah. where a lot of people have died on both sides. I mean, uh uh, in the Iraqi war, we have, they say, around a million people have been killed either directly or indirectly because of our invasion of Iraq. But we have had not had any wars on our soil for the last 150 years, ever since the Civil War. And that was a terrible event, the Civil War. And, uh, and because of that, people cannot relate to how bad things can get yeah. when you're living in an area where people are fighting on, where armies are fighting on, when planes are bombing. So it's cool and neat to find a plane, to, to, to see a plane on TV and it's dropping bombs and it is very precise. And we see the TV showing us where the bomb went in through the window of a house and then it blew up. And uh, 
it's terrible when you're at the other end, you know, sitting. And, uh, you know, uh, the danger is that, you know, when we have these wars being portrayed in this particular manner, that it is cool and it is... Uh, 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 it's like patriotic. Maybe. Very patriotic. And, 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 and sometimes, you know, I wonder, uh, you know, a lot of these wars that we've been in or we've supported, how much good it had done our country. I mean, so how did, were our lives improved by doing all these wars? So if you look at the Vietnam War, OK, so if we had not been there. Right. So, yeah, uh-huh. but we cannot say it's a huge mistake when, you know, over uh, a million Vietnamese died and over 50,000 U.S. citizens well, died. We shouldn't, have done, we shouldn't have done it, right? And what did we go in for? I mean, I don't I understand don't what the benefit out of all this comes out. So, I I mean, I am deep down, I'm, I'm, I think I'm a pacifist. Yeah. And, and I, I think wars can always be justified by the people that want to sell arms, that want to control other people. Uh, they can be justified based on power kind of dynamics, you know. But in the end, the results will really improve the livelihood of the people involved on either side. I don't know. I mean, you know, OK, the people that work in the arms industry benefit. But who else? Yeah, I don't know. No, I'm 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 with you, and um, I said it on the podcast last week. Just the recent history of Iraq and Afghanistan; those were completely, in my view, pointless wars. We got nothing from them. You look at Afghanistan; it was our longest war in history, and we left and we lost a bunch of soldiers at that airport when we were leaving, and we did we improved nothing. We improved nothing. And how many American lives and how many Afghanistan, you know, innocent people there were killed? It just makes no sense. So it seems like it seems like there's more of an appetite in the U.S. public not to get involved. Of course, I say that. And now we're 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 supplying all these people. We're not we're not. The whole thing I keep hearing is, well, there's no boots on the ground. So if there's no boots on the ground, we're all okay with it. That's what it seems. Seems like we're we're so we have so much PTSD as long as American soldiers are not somewhere, but we can give them missiles and stuff, it's okay. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you know, I, I think, you know, it makes it seem uh, okay uh, because we don't have any Americans dying. But unfortunately, a life is a life. Yes. You know, whether it is a, an American soldier, an American civilian, a Lebanese soldier, a Lebanese civilian, a, an Israeli soldier, an Israeli civilian, a Palestinian soldier, a Palestinian, you know. And I think, you know, I, I mean, wars have been with us uh, since uh, we have been documenting history. So it's been with us for thousands and thousands of years. It seems to me that it is a terrible way to basically solve problems. And it seems to me that we in the 21st century now, we can find other modern ways by which we can communicate with each other and basically deal with our differences. Differences can be a source of strength, not a source of a threat to to each other. Mm -hmm. And... uh, and hopefully, I, mean, I I don't know, uh, you know, the problem is as long as there are people that are benefiting from war, then they will basically continue to kind of give us this misconception of, you know, that, that that we need to be afraid of the other person, of the unknown, and we need to protect ourselves from them. And usually, you know, that can that has been done in 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 in, in, in violent way. Yeah. So then the stronger wins all the time and stronger is always right because they write history. Mm. What I wanted to change gears a little bit. Do you know what year France colonized Lebanon or what, what century what around time period was that? And and if and I my second question to that is if it was so long ago, how come there still seems to be so much French influence in Lebanon? Even the highway signs are in Fran on French. And English. And English. You know, but still. Yeah. 
basically, France colonized Lebanon in 1920, right after World War One, so around 100 years ago. And, um, and I think the French influence in Lebanon is huge. As as George is telling you, uh, and you see it mostly in the fact that almost half the schools in Lebanon, meaning the primary and high schools in Lebanon, are were created and and to some extent run by French uh, priests. I will say Jesuits, uh, Holy Cross people, uh, and 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 almost all you know. So half the schools in Lebanon are basically Christian schools that were created by the French. And that influence remains still today. So even the Muslims in Lebanon, uh, uh, the majority of those Muslims in Lebanon actually get educated in Christian schools. And that's a huge contribution that the French have made to our society. And this is why when people talk uh, about, let's go back talking about Lebanon. Uh, When you look at Lebanon, Lebanon is a very small country. It's a country of 10,000 square miles, uh, square kilometers, sorry, not miles. And so it is uh, smaller than Rhode Island, uh, just to give things, put things in perspective. Yeah. And we have no industries to speak of. We have no agricultural, uh, huge agricultural lands to speak of. And it's very difficult for us to kind of export a lot of goods and get hard currency to buy oil and gas and all these other things that we now need for electricity and everything else. And so we're... What do we export? And I keep telling George during the trip, we actually, yeah, we export educated human capital abroad. So you have many more Lebanese living abroad than you have Lebanese living inside the country. Most of these people living abroad are highly educated. They're totally integrated in the societies they went to. They're highly productive. And many of them send back you know, uh, money and funds and so forth to help people that have remained back in Lebanon. And uh, and so much of that education, much of that educated workforce was actually developed by the French, by the true French schools. Now, of course, uh, in higher education, meaning in colleges and universities, the most famous university we have is the American University of Beirut. So despite we have, you know, we have a French basis, uh, but interestingly enough, Almost everybody in Lebanon speaks English, as George will tell you. Yeah. Even the taxi driver will speak English. The waiter will speak English. So when when we were kind of, you know, seeing the country together, I'll tell them, you don't need me because you can go anywhere you want. You know, any taxi will understand you. Any waiter will understand you. You can, uh, you know, communicate with everybody. That's the fun part about being in Lebanon is you don't have to learn another language, nor get your uh, uh, iPhone and then translate, you know, if you want to say something in Arabic. And, and and that, to a great uh, extent, is a credit to the French education system. So most of the Lebanese will study Arabic and French to start with. And then when they are in uh, uh, fifth or sixth grade, they pick up English. And whoever studied French first ends up learning English very easily. So most people in the country will speak three languages. And, and and that's great. And most of them, some of them uh, uh, go to the American University and actually do their education in English, their college education in English, and end up coming to the States and and, and, uh, and uh, getting their higher degrees, whether it's master's or PhDs or becoming doctors uh, over here. And uh, despite the fact that they started their education in Arabic and French. And obviously, anyone who can speak two or three languages, and that's a big sign of intelligence, you know. Um, We don't have that as much, 
I, I would say here. Uh, I want to correct <laughs> here, George. You know, uh, I don't think it's a sign of intelligence. Think so? I think most of the... Um, I took so many years of Spanish, I don't know anything. And I'll tell you why. Because you learn... No, 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 George. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. I, I'm going to, you know, uh, uh, we're going to disagree on this one. Okay. Uh, I think, you know, the key here is you start educating kids a second or third languages yeah. as early as possible. Yeah. And so in Lebanon, we actually, in, in when we're at the age of three, so we're in preschool, we start learning oh. a second language. Okay. okay. And then, you know, a few years later, we, th- we learn the third language. So the younger you start, uh, I have a grandson now, and my grandson is a year and two months old. Uh, his mother, my daughter, talks to him in English. His dad uh, talks to him in Lebanese. And his grandma talks to him in French exclusively. Wow. So each one talks to him in different language. The kid, whether smart or not smart, is going to end up learning three languages. But are they, they're doing that on purpose. I see. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 All, all three of them can speak the three languages. Three languages. Okay. But they decided each one would talk to the kid in one language huh. so that the kid will know that this is different than the other language. Wow. That's a good way. Yeah. I love it. If I have kids someday, in 2040, I'll remember that. Okay. Uh, back to the whole French thing. This is my last thing on on France. Um, you meant it was kind of a joke, I think, but you said Lebanon's, you know, obviously got problems um, that it wants to fix, like everybody. And maybe it'd be the only country to ask the colonizers to come back. I just wanted to make just ask you this like, one more time: if that were possible, do you think it would it would help Lebanon or? make it the old country it used to be, or not really, it's not really a real thing. Uh, yes, as you said at the end here, it's not really realistic, but I think this is my own personal perspective and that's shared by many Lebanese, not the majority probably, but many Lebanese, that uh, uh, if the colonizing, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm insisting that it's the French, and I'm not saying the Americans nor the English, I'm particularly picking on the French because the French have this uh, history of basically when they colonize a place, the first thing they do is basically focus on education and they send their their priests and missions and so forth to basically uh, convert people to Christianity and then teach them and, you know, improve their livelihood by getting them educated. I like that. But the French did a lot of good things to the country. Our problem in Lebanon, of course, no Indigenous people like to be ruled by another, you know, people, right? But uh, the truth is, uh, you know, the Lebanese and by extension, the Arabs were ruled by the Ottoman Empire for 400 years. And during that period, we did not have any period of self-rule. So we don't know how to govern ourselves. Oh. We don't know what to, you know, yeah. how to manage a country. We don't know how to kind of think in terms of the common good of society rather than our individual, you know, yeah. needs and, and wants. And that needs to take time. And we never were given the time, time enough after the Ottoman Empire collapsed to basically develop our own institutions, develop our own uh, uh, organizations to basically rule the country and manage it properly. And and that did not help us. And until today, we still are struggling with that. And, and you know, I mean, uh, this is not something new to us. I mean, in Europe, you had 200 years of war before you settled into nation states and they were able to basically govern themselves in, 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 in within a nation state. 
uh, you know, we didn't have a nation state until, you know, 1943. So we're less than 100 years from, you know, the time we established the state. And we're strugg- still struggling on how to kind of deal with people that think differently from us. So in democracy, and, and, and this is really unfortunate because I think even in the United States, we're regressing a little bit on our understanding of democracy. In democracy, yes, we have voting and we have people that come in to represent us and, 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 and to, to basically help govern the country. But when that happens, we have to understand that there are people, other people that think differently than us. And we have to kind of work with these people in order to basically convince them, convince them, not force them, convince them that we have a better plan on how to govern the country. And then we have to try to work with them in order to govern the country. It's not that if somebody thinks differently than me, then they are a traitor or they are, you know, they they, they are stupid or they are ignorant. That's not what democracy is all about. You know, then it becomes tyranny because that says that, you know, my ideas and my thoughts are the only ones that are good. That's not the idea behind democracy. It's an exchange of ideas. It's ideas working together to make better things come out of it, you know? And this is what we haven't learned. And I think in our country here in the United States, you know, we're going backwards. So now, you know, we have Republicans and Democrats in Congress and Senate that don't talk to each other. They yeah. kind of, you know, they they either you do it my way or no way, or you take the highway, you know? Uh, and, and that's not a way to run a country. I mean, this is going to be detrimental to us in the long run, as it has been to Lebanon for the past 70 years. And Lebanon is a democracy, is what you're saying. Okay. In Lebanon, we have voting, okay? So I don't know if you kind of vote for a president or a prime minister or to get people in Congress. We have a parliament that represents us. If that's, we can term that as a democracy, yeah. okay? So yes, we have voting, uh, but our voting, because our politicians are so smart, maybe like the people that make politicians in the United States, that they uh, use fear. They make us afraid of each other so that they will retain the power. So just like in the United States, if you were a senator or a congressman and you seek re-election, uh, you have more than 80% chance of getting re-elected. Yeah. It's very difficult to basically change a person that is already in power uh, because they have a lot of resources at their disposal to basically, you know, get re-elected. The same way in Lebanon. Most of the people that are in the parliament get re-elected, not because they've done such a great job getting the country better, not because they have better plans than somebody else for the country. No, they get re-elected because they make us afraid of the other person. They say, oh, no, we, we, we will protect you from you. We'll protect your interests from other people. And, you know, and This is where we are at also in the United States is that, you know, we have people that have interest, you know, whether it is the insurance company, the pharmaceutical company, the the, uh, military industrial complex, uh, you know, the Israeli lobby, they all have interest. And basically we they try to convince us that, you know, their interests are our interests as a general population. And that's not necessarily true. The gun lobby interest, you know, I mean, we have to look at the interest of the country rather than the special interest groups. Yeah. Well, we could go into a huge topic there. We won't, but yeah. And of course, there was just that, you know, we have big problems here. We just had that shooting in Maine, killed 18 people. You know, it's it's disgusting. It doesn't happen other places. It shouldn't happen here. Um, if you could just, so Lebanon, we've talked a lot about it, the problems, whatever. If you could say, wave your magic wand and fix one thing overnight that would have an immediate positive effect 
in Lebanon, what would it be? Uh, I would fix the judicial system. Uh, if everybody in the country is uh, can be treated fairly and equally, so if the laws are applied to every single individual in Lebanon equally, I think 90% of our problems will disappear. Will disappear. So You're there has to be... Maybe the judges are... They're, not, they're kind of corrupt or that you can't trust them or the justice system is not, not trustworthy. It's a systematic problem. It's not, you know, that individual judges are bad. Yeah. The system is bad. When judges are appointed by politicians, for instance, mm-hmm. their loyalty are to the politician and what they stand for rather than to justice, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And so, so I think that, you know, a judicial system should be independent from the political system and that the law should be applied to everybody equally. And there should be checks and balances because the law provides for checks and balances in the system. You cannot have people operating with impunity. And so people should be responsible for their actions and the law makes sure that people are responsible for their actions. So I think that's where it all starts and ends. Yeah. is in the judicial system being oh. independent and fair and just to everybody. That's my opinion. Yeah. But there are many other things that we need to improve in Lebanon. I wish you were going to ask me what are some great things we have in Lebanon. No, I, I know. Yeah. Well, we were, and again, as I've said, when we were there, um, you know, I thought the people were incredibly friendly. I The food was amazing. Weather's amazing. None of us ever felt unsafe. None of us ever saw any weapons, minus what the Lebanese military were carrying. None of, none of us ever got sick. And we saw all these great things. And it just was, it was sad a little bit because you know Lebanon is this great place and could be this really great place, but it's got all these things holding it back and things that are way above our our heads and we we don't know much we've been in the middle east one time what do we know we don't know anything really but but you could and even i was amazed at the american corporations that are still in lebanon you know that's all uh, usually a nod to this is a good place to do business you know the, the capitalistic uh, environment uh, the fact that mcdonald's is there Starbucks. i mean starbucks is there i mean that you know and, and our hotel was great um in that area we had um whatever that fancy area in the city is I think we had Babel Bell right there it was like an American city. So you you could see all the little glimpses of where it is great. Um, you know, it, it just uh, it, it's things that are beyond our understanding, really. So I think I think uh, George is capturing it here. I think it all boils down to people. And when some people, when people ask me, why did you kind of pick up your bags, give up a tenured position at one of the major universities yeah, in the United the States? In the world, really. Exactly. And, and, and that was a hard decision. Beyond some of the other names. Exactly. Especially when our football team is doing well. Uh, no, it's not that <laughs> <laughs> Come on, George. It's not that bad. No, you're right. Uh, you, exactly. Uh, but, uh, you know, why did you go back? And, you know, I can go back for... A lot of the reasons that George has just said, you know, uh, the weather is terrific, you know, most of the year it's it's mild, it's sunny, we have 300 days of sunshine, we're on the Mediterranean, it is beautiful, you can swim year round, Uh, you can ski, Uh, you can have, you know, probably the best food in the world, uh, bar none. Uh, you can um, visit almost everybody. Uh, every place you have in Lebanon is close by. You can go one end of the country to the other one in a couple of hours of driving. So everything's close, you know, and, 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 and rather simple. But 
there is one reason why I, you know, went back. I went there because of the people. I love, I, I love uh, the people that exist in Lebanon. They're warm. They're generous. Uh, generous more than anybody else you know in the world. They they will uh, uh, they they they're concerned about humanistic issues. If you get sick, you know uh, your hospital room will never be empty. If you need something, you'll have many people rushing to kind of you know help you out. Uh, people take care of each other because the government is not there to take care of you, and so that forces people to be kind of dependent on each other. And and uh, you have a, a very vibrant social life that exists there. So from that respect, I think, you know, Lebanon and Lebanon, people are easy to communicate with. They're friendly. So friendly and generous and warm. So when uh, foreigners come into the country, they're stunned by, you know, how welcoming they uh, people are. People from all over. And, you know, the foreigners are stunned. stunned. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and so uh, uh, so I think that's the one thing that kind of differentiates us, because there are other countries that have nice weather, other countries that have, you know, uh, archaeological sites, or other countries that have nice beaches and so forth. But I think the people in Lebanon are particularly uh, generous and warm and friendly, more so than most other people I know. Why, is, and, why are they so friendly? Is that just the I'll culture? tell you. No, no, yeah. I, you know, there, there is a saying we have. That says uh, need is the mother of all inventions. If uh, if you take a look at where Lebanon is located, it's located at the intersection of three continents, not three countries. We have Europe up north, we have Africa down south, and we have Asia in the east. And uh, throughout history, this is an area where people have invaded, have come and visited, have you know lived in. Uh, uh, around a third of the people that live in Lebanon have blue eyes or green eyes. And so there is this mixture of of, of cultures and heritages that exist there. Because that, you know, uh, you have this this inflow of a lot of foreigners into the country, you know, one mean of survival is to have to be nice to them. You have to kind of associate with them. And you have, you know, we're talking over three, four, five thousand years. We're not talking only modern history. Yeah. And so that developed a uh, a knack for how to interact with other people, people that are different than you. Yeah, it's a great it's a great lesson, and we we felt it. And I, the, my sisters, um, if you listen to episode twenty four, or just talk to that, you already know how they feel. They they were they were you know they felt so cared for. And um, I probably you know between me and them, we we met people at the bar. We have their Instagrams. I met waiters at Hotel Albergo. I I talked to. I mean, there's uh, people were just so friendly. I just you just started talking to people, and they just tell you anything you want, and it's it was a great, you know, very open. And um, so, yeah, obviously we we felt all that. Was our family because you really don't know us before the trip? I don't think um, what you expected once we arrived, or if we weren't, what was different? Uh, I don't know if I had. No, you know it's 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 interesting. I mean, you know, I, I think you're you're a typical U.S. family. Oh, here we go. We're just typical average people. Huh? Yeah, because, I mean, you know, what are you gonna be interested? In? I'm interested in having fun. Yeah. I'm interested in being safe. You know, I'm interested in seeing as much as we can in a short period of time. You know, and um, I don't want to get sick. Uh, and so, uh, and you're you're you're. Uh, uh, I, I don't, the word is not nosy. It's uh, curious. Curious. You're curious. You want to find things about this country where you know your grandparents have come from, and uh, and I think that was wonderful. Uh, that sense of curiosity, because I think Lebanese have it in general. Yeah. And, and so, yeah. Well, 
So I think it is a uh, a, a typical expat family coming back to kind of find its heritage or know more a little bit about their heritage yeah. rather than finding you know their heritage. So I think you know, uh, and I. Uh, it was interesting seeing the you know how you were the progression of what you thought about the country yeah and uh, shell shocked in the beginning and then that just went away yeah. i mean one of the things that but you notice be shell shocked of course if i was in thailand i would be shell shocked or exactly. vietnam whatever exactly it's not anything to lebanon but in and in, in in lebanon one of the things that you know you you, you are going to find out it is uh, as I told you when you were there, it's a country of contrast. So yeah. from one sense, you it have is. a country that is Eastern. It, it exists in an Eastern environment, Arabic environment. You know, you have this mystique about, you know, the Arab culture. But yet the country, in terms of how it operates, is very Western. You know, yes. most of the amenities that exist there are Western oriented. You know, the amenities? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, in in. Uh, people, you know, drive nice cars, you know, just yeah. like any, you know, big city. There are like big city in many places. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you find that, you know, uh, uh, this contrast between East and West mixes well in the country. Yeah. And uh, they don't, you know, you, you don't have people like uh, uh, here you legislate, you know, how to deal with differences. You yeah, know, and so you have to protect, you know, everything. the minorities, you have to protect, you know, yeah. the people that are different and so forth. Over there, it happens naturally, you know, and uh, why? Because, you know, actually the minorities are not minorities. They, they're kind of equal in number. And uh, these people have been forced to live together in one country for, uh, you know, hundreds of years. And so they figured out a way by which they can accept differences without, yeah. you know, somebody telling them you have to accept differences. Right. Uh, now, also, you know, uh, that also means that you have to be thick skinned, you know, and and, and as such, you know, uh, some things that, you know, uh, one might find offensive if they say it in a mean way might be, you know, not so in a, in a, in a, in a third world country where there are really yeah. bigger well, problems get, to deal with. Yeah, the U.S., we just lately in the last couple, we just get offended by everything. Yeah. We're so sensitive. Um, between the four of us, who was the most fun to tour around? I have to say George Jr., you know, because he actually... Actually, he was the most challenging to be with, uh, you know, uh, because he had the most to kind of uh, the most things that he was concerned about. He also was most concerned about the family having a good time. So, you know, and, well, and he was I'm going to see. I always said, I'll give you the true story. Some other George is just going to tell you what you want to hear. And I, I'll, he'll, I'll be the one to take the complaint. Like I, you won't be. <laughs> no, I I thought you know so I I mean each one of you guys was special in their own terms you know and I love the fact that your dad wanted to kind of uh, live his heritage not he only by the you know yeah. he wanted to live that and he's the only one who's done it yeah and my yeah. grandfather never returned to Lebanon which is interesting yeah and 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 George was so George Senior was so excited and passionate about what he saw that he wants his brothers to come. And so you know, yeah, uh, we all think Scott would have, should have come, would have had an amazing time, and he will come. Yeah. So we'll you know we're we're gonna think positively, right? So you know he will come. Uh, you know, and your sisters were incredible. I thought you know uh, both of them were 
really interested in, in, in getting to know the country, its people, yeah. uh, interact with, 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 with people that live there. And, uh, and so I think each... And they're well-traveled. Yeah. They're better traveled than me. And definitely so better traveled so than George Sr. You, you know, uh, was special in their own rights. Okay. That's a political answer. All right. <laughs> um, okay. What's something we have to do if we ever come back to Lebanon? What did we miss? Something big that we sh- we need to see upon return? Or did we, did we really hit all the main points? <laughs> I don't think we hit 10% of what this country had to offer, you know, you know, so, uh, uh, you know, we didn't go to the cedars, which are the symbols of Lebanon, oh, yes. right? you know, cedars. and see trees that are 3000 years old, uh, that uh, uh, basically we are, uh, they're getting extinct, so we better rush back and see them before, you know, what? extinct, you know, oh. the, these old trees, yeah. not that, you know, we're planting new ones, but, you know, um, I think, you know, one thing, if there is one thing that I'd like you to do is I'd like you to kind of come to a village, not necessarily mine, but, you know, to, to any village and live in it for three days mm. and just experience life as it is in a normal environment where you don't have to do touristic stuff. Yeah. You have to you just, you know, uh, uh, maybe one day what we will do also, if you'd like to come back, is do a hike. There yes, is, I would have done a hike, yeah. Uh, there is a... Um, uh, a group that's doing uh, that has the uh, uh, designed a trail that goes from the north of Lebanon to the south of Lebanon, and it takes 31 days to kind of do it hiking from one mountain top to the other. And of course, you don't have to do that days. in 31 days. Oh so you, you don't have. That. I have not done that, but I have done pieces of it. Okay. So what you can do is go for three days, five days, seven yeah. days. And, you know, participate. The nice thing about that is not doing the 31 days. I mean, you know, because you don't have the time. Maybe you do, but, you know, or the interest. But it will be nice to do it for three days. And what you do is you spend two or three. And then where we camp, we camp actually in villages that are remote villages away from, you know, I would call civilization. And just get to meet some really phenomenal people that live there and, and see how, you know, how they live what their thoughts and ideas are, how do they interact with people that are foreigners, etc. And the nice thing about Lebanon that we haven't talked about is that, uh, you know, the people in that country is very, very diverse, especially when it comes to religious beliefs. Right. I noticed so, that when we were touring. There's all there's all these different pockets of religion and living together. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's it. So Mar- when, what was the one? Maronite? So, so the Maronites are very, are basically an offshoot of the Catholics. The Catholics, yeah. So you have Maronites, you have Orthodox Christians. These are, you know, uh, uh, Greek Orthodox Christians that are part of the Eastern Church. There are Protestants, of course. And then there are Muslims, there are Shiites and Sunnis, yeah. and then there is Druze. Druze are an offshoot of the Muslim religion. Druze, They're very, yeah. uh, you know, uh, enclosed community. Is that not, that uh, big castle was you took us? Yes, that's it. Yes. Okay. Beit yeah. Okay. yeah. But the nice thing, where my, what, when my great grandfather was exactly foreigners, and so his great grandfather was a Christian Maronite. We were Christian Maronites, and and, and he was born and lived. Uh, two villages away from where the Druze ruled of Lebanon, ruled Lebanon for 400 Word. years, and the castle exists today, and it's in perfect condition. So, yeah, and and the nice thing, this is the nice thing, is that throughout Lebanon, the Christians, the Muslims, the Druze, 
are intermixed. It's not like you have, you know, uh, one area that has only Christians and another one has only Muslims, another yeah. one has only, you know, Druze and so forth. Actually, you know, when I go hiking, uh, one night we sleep at the Muslim village, another we sleep at the Christian one, and yeah. you know, and it's just within a walking distance from one another, you know. Yeah. So. What was that Christian monument you took us to, and you said there's more visitors that are Muslim visiting it than Christians? Yeah, that 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 monument is called Harissa, uh, which is Saint Mary's uh, of uh, uh, Mount Lebanon, and this. Uh, this monument uh, that 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 uh, that uh, they've done or we've done for for Saint Mary uh, overlooks the biggest Christian town in Lebanon, but yet uh, there are more Muslim visitors to it than there are Christians, and part of the reason, not entirely the whole reason, but part of the reason is that Mary uh, is the most uh, glorified, I want to say, woman. In the Quran, in the Muslim, you know, Bible, yeah. and and uh, so they they revere Mary as much as the Christians do, and they yeah. believe that she is the mother of of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is called uh, Yeshua uh, in in Arabic, and uh, and they consider Jesus to be a prophet. They don't consider Jesus to be a son of God like we do. They but they consider him to be. Uh, probably the most important prophet, either before or after Muhammad, depends how you, you know. Some people say he's even, you know, uh, he's the only prophet in the Quran that has made miracles. So they admit that Jesus oh. has made miracles. Okay. While Muhammad did not do any miracles. So despite, the, you know, Muhammad's claim to fame in the Muslim religion is that he is the last, they believe he's the last prophet. He's the final prophet that basically puts the final touches on the monolithic religions, mm -hmm. you know, but the uh, the Muslim religion is is built on it's, it's based on the Old Testament and the New Testament. So nearly sixty percent of the uh, of the Quran, uh, the Muslim Bible, is based on the Old Testament and the New Testament. You know, the the main difference, and all three religions teach teach peace, teach love. Uh, in contrast to what is being marketed, that a lot of the Muslims are basically terrorists, and you know, yeah. and they enjoy but killing. Of course, that they're, they're not. And of not, course, you know, there's. I mean, what the Muslims, uh, you know, what some Muslims have done in the name of religion, is very minuscule compared to what uh, some Christians in the Middle Ages did in the name. Right? All the yeah. crusades that were done, crusades. you know, in the name of God, you know, by the Christians, yeah. uh, by us Christians. Uh, is is uh, the, yes, yeah, I am I Christian. I am, I I am not a practicing Christian, but I was born as Christian. Uh -huh. Okay, yeah, I grew up Catholic, which would make sense since we were Christian Maronites. Um, okay, I had two fact. This we're wrapping up a little bit, but I had two fact checks from last week. It is Chili's. You know that American chain Chili's. You, I thought you said that's one of the best restaurants in Lebanon. Is that true? I never saw a Chili's. And the girl said, no, George, he's talking about an actual chili pepper. And I said, no, and then we don't know. It's funny because I just went to Chili's here uh, the day before yesterday. Uh, I like Chili's. I like yeah, the salad that's like 2,000 calories. And 
the quesadilla. I love calories, you know. Yeah, I don't like know. Calories. Yeah. You look thin, though. Yeah, that's because I walk all the time. Oh. You know, I, I exercise it off. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I eat at Chili's here, and there is one restaurant in Lebanon that is, I think it's a franchise chili in Lebanon that I particularly like it, and it is one of the uh, uh, I would say premier restaurants in Lebanon, you know, that it's, there's it's, only it's one. and there's only one and it, it is, is very expensive and it's brand. very good. It's, chili it's Shelly's brand. It's Chili's branded. Oh. And, you know, and I prefer I right, to girls as always. <laughs> George is always right. I have to tell you guys, I learned that in Lebanon. Okay. Well, that, yes. <laughs> um, and then my other fact check was, does the military only make a hundred dollars per month? Was that a true fact? Because I I wrote that down, but I, that seems insane to me. <laughs> a lot of things are insane in Lebanon. Actually, uh, we have to make a whole episode over what happened to Lebanon and then maybe, you know, what's happening in the region. I've got a couple here we can still, yeah, yeah good time. Uh, now, what, what uh, George didn't tell you is that uh, over the past three years, we've had a severe economic meltdown in the country where almost in it? 2019. So... Right around when COVID came along, you know, uh, right before that, by a few months, uh, they, we had some uh, people that were demonstrating against the government, and then the whole uh, the government collapsed, and with it collapsed the banking system. You got to have it to run a country. Exactly. I mean, right. you can you imagine running a country, let's say, like the United States, no. with no banks? No. Uh, so we have not had any banks. No banks today. And that means that you cannot go to the bank and get your money. So if you had savings in the bank, they took your money. And so a lot of people got... The government? It's not going to disappear, George. We don't know where it went. We're still looking to see where it went. Including some of your money. Of course, some of my money. In a Lebanese bank. In a Lebanese bank. And you're not going to get it back. I'm not going to get it back. Yes. Yes, to all of the above. You're going to be okay. There's people that... Well, I'm okay because I have, uh, you know, a retirement uh, at, at Notre Dame and I get, you know, that? Social Security and so forth. So I have an income that comes from outside the country. Many people in Lebanon don't. And so they people are struggling much more than, than others. Now, as part of that, so when you have an economy that collapsed completely and that is uh, symbolized that in, that, yeah. in the government banking centers, totally shut down. Totally shut down. And so uh, the most that you can get from any bank if it's four hundred dollars a month, okay, that's 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 what you have to live on. So in that environment, you know, the Lebanese pound no collapsed. I see insuring anything. No, okay. So if you know, George is pushing me here to explain to you what happened. I mean, in in a nutshell, oh. in a nutshell, to make it simple, the banks basically had over fifty percent of their assets in Lebanese government bonds. Okay. okay. And when the government could no longer pay off these bonds, could no longer pay the interest on these bonds because the government was totally mismanaged, okay? The assets of the banks became negligible. They became, you know, their value was reduced to such an extent that whatever they had could no longer pay off the depositors they had because these banks, their assets were in Lebanese government bonds. And the government is no longer paying these bonds off. Okay. So it's like, you know, when you make an investment in anything and the investment goes sour. So these banks invested in Lebanese government bonds. This was 
this was stupid because you don't put all your eggs in one basket. I mean, that's the yeah, 101, that's yeah, eggs, right? You know, that's what we do. Yeah. So they basically did not diversify. As a result of that, you know, they got hit very hard when the government forfeited on these bonds. And so the government is bankrupt that caused the banks to be bankrupt in this environment. Okay. So if you, uh, if you take the salary of a, an army officer, you know, that used to be, let's say, uh, uh, 10,000 Lebanese pounds, 10,000 Lebanese pounds was like $6,000 a month. That's pretty cool. You know, right today, that same 10,000, you know, 10 million Lebanese pounds would make ten dollars right. just to give you a notion of how yes, much the yes. currency collapsed. So the, the U.S. money and we noticed. So that. the government kind of the, the the Lebanese pound went down. Ninety nine percent of its value is disappeared. It's gone. It's gone, and that's why these army officers, army personnel, don't make any. Don't make any all government employees make very little money, nearly trivial amount of money. Trivial. Yeah, yeah. and so this will become a social problem as you move forward. Yeah. It's bound to that's the, that's to me. That's the biggest problem Lebanon has right now. Is yeah. the bank got to fix the banking problem? Yeah, and and it's interesting to see how they're gonna fix it. I mean, what is way- there a prime minister? Who's the president of Lebanon? Uh, so and Khalil's laughing. Yeah, I'm laughing because uh, we haven't had the president for the past year. Yeah. When when you know, in most other countries, when you're faced with a calamity, you know. You know, right. we, you know, a we major calamity. Uh, people will get together, meaning politicians, leaders, whatever, you know, will get together to try to kind of figure out a way to solve the problem. In Lebanon, they all disperse and run away and don't want to deal with the issue. Right. And so they haven't been able to elect a president in a year. There is no president. Uh, probably will, you know, and when we elect the president, it'll take them two years to form a government. And so there is no sense of urgency that, you know, this country is you know, faces major economic issues yeah. and there's no one to fix it. Yeah. You know, that's why I don't know what's going to happen. You don't know. So, so to, to me, just to re- kind of recap this part of the conversation, you had the civil war that started in the 70s and 80s and went to what a 90 or 92. Then in 2006, wasn't there some kind of conflict? And then in 2019, the banking system collapsed. And then in 2020, you had the bomb that went off. Am I? That's all the stuff that's happened in the last 40 years. So it's right. Isn't that enough, George? Enough. I think we've had our fair share of more than no. our fair share of problems. 2006. Okay, that? 2006. Uh, the Israelis basically Israeli. decided to kind of bomb the heck out of Lebanon. So for, for who though? Okay, against so yeah, Hezbollah? yeah, against Hezbollah. Okay. So Hezbollah has uh, hundreds of prisoners in in um, Israel. And so what so they do, holding yeah, you know, and, and several incursions before, yes. you know, there is fighting, but these, these two, you know, they, they took many prisoners. Got it. Uh, and so, uh, you know, because Hezbollah and, and Israel has been fighting each other for last for for the last 30 years. Uh, and 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 so uh, when Israelis occupied southern Lebanon from 1982 to year 2000, they took oh, a lot of the year 2000. Even. Yeah, to the year 2000. Early 90s. No. no, no, to the year 2000. Okay. In year 2000, Israel withdraws from southern so you're Lebanon. Talking about the border. Yeah, the border area, Which the you south. Didn't go to. You didn't go to because and we wouldn't have gone to because we needed a permission, you know, from the Lebanese government but to you go to. Have wanted to take us there. No, I wanted to take you, you there. Next time you come, I'll take you there. Okay. Because I keep telling Even you, these Hezbollah people like 
you know, foreigners because they make money like everybody else. Yeah. They make money off it. You I know, they they tourism. The no, no, there's no. As you I, as how you, many? Two. We had we went at least two to one three. to Balbek. You know yeah. that, that that was you know a a, a headquarters for them. And what, did you feel safe? Yeah, with the Roman ruins. Yeah. And, no, but what about that place by the sea? There's Hezbollah in there. No, not too many. No, okay. no. We went I, to Saida, which is, you know, it yeah, doesn't have Hezbollah. That's not right. No, no. It's a night, no, not, no. not a great area. Yeah, it's not. It's a poor area. Poor, and you didn't feel unsafe there, did you? No, I didn't. Yeah. No. So, you know. Although being up in Balbek, with a, that definitely started feeling like like what you think about Syria feels like eventually yeah. it felt it felt more desert going to Be Beirut feels just a, kind of like a city and then you've got some buildings that are like oh that's weird that that building's standing and it's not I would think they would tear that building down but they don't have they should that, that's not that's the low priority on the problem problem yeah uh, even the building next to our hotel was had missile and bullet holes in it you remember? I showed you that, right? You know, you, you, yes, of course. That's the Holiday See, Inn. There was a that's government. the Holiday Inn. Oh, if there was a government, they would have turned that down by now. They should, you know. But, I mean, some of them stay there as a right. remembrance, oh, as oh, a yeah. reminder of the war, you know, right. the civil war that we had. Uh, okay, 2006. So, so, you know, so Israel withdraws in the year 2000. When they withdraw 2000, they take with them a lot of prisoners. And Hezbollah wanted to get these prisoners back. And so in 2006, and remember, between 2000, 2000, nothing happens between Hezbollah and Israel. It's totally peaceful. Uh, Israel, uh, sorry, Hezbollah uh, kidnaps a couple of Israeli soldiers. They ambush a, an Israeli bat patrol, and they basically take two Israeli prisoners. And Israel goes nuts like they're going nuts today. Yeah. And and so they come and they for 40 days they bomb the shit out of Lebanon. Interesting enough, they bombed, country, they, they bombed everywhere. They bombed 185 bridges. Oh, Don't yes. ask me why they bombed the bridges, but they bombed bridges, factories, oh, things yeah. like that. And they did not, somehow didn't bomb any Hezbollah kind of, you no, know, they, territories. No, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. They bombed, you know, they bombed the shit out of Lebanon as a punishment, I guess, for, uh -huh. you know, uh, having Hezbollah there. Uh, now, Hezbollah is, you know, uh, for the most part has fought Israel uh, inside Lebanon, everyone's in. And, uh, you know, uh, so usually you say, okay, uh, by the way, Hezbollah is Shiite, and maybe two-thirds of the people in Lebanon are against Hezbollah fighting Israel just because they don't want to be retaliated against, not because they don't believe that they're right, but because yeah. it's not in our interest to basically be fighting Israel. And uh, But at the same time, these people, you know, uh, do they have a right or not to basically uh, uh, kick out uh, people that are occupying their land? And Hezbollah, if Hezbollah does, does Hezbollah or XYZ, call whatever. them whatever you want. Yeah. If somebody comes and takes part of your land, do you have a right or not to basically try to get it back by any means possible? Now, you might disagree about the means. But you probably don't disagree about the fact that they have the right to try to kind of get that land back. Yeah. But if it is their land. So, so for Lebanon as a, like a sovereign nation, given there's not a government, sovereign, yeah. is, it, is it a good thing that there's so much, such a big group of Hezbollah fighters in Lebanon? That can't be good for Lebanon, right? No, I mean, this is a big, big, huge debate in Lebanon. Uh, and that's, you know, you have this armed group that basically does not take orders from the Lebanese orders, uh, so, army. Right. So they have their own agenda. They're not scared of Lebanese army. No, because they're stronger. Are they than stronger the Lebanese than Lebanese army? Yeah, well, yeah. because, you know, 
they are armed very well by whoever supports them. And the Lebanese army is not allowed to be armed. We don't, don't we have the, we don't have even the money to basically arm our army. You know, we, we as, as we pay our officer a hundred dollars. Yeah, I don't know how you can buy, buy tanks or weapons no, or, no, no. or yeah. planes. I you I think you showed me the navy of Lebanon. You said that's the there's one navy ship. Yeah. So you know, so again, the army they need a navy. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, but I don't. I wouldn't want this group that's your uncontrollable. But the, okay, so the question and then becomes the US is saying, "Well, you're all terrorists." Yeah, you know that's not good. No, it's not good. And and but the question is, what can you do about it? I don't know. Yeah. So so so, so do you have another civil war? Now remember, no. we went through a civil war that lasted nearly twenty years, at right. the end of which nothing changed. Okay. So now we and, and over a hundred thousand people got killed in that civil war. Yeah. So now we go into another civil oh, war gosh. where. They are the most, you know, Hezbollah is the most uh, uh, well-trained, equipped military, paramilitary militia that exists there. And the Lebanese army is weaker than it. Okay, so what do you do in that case? So you go try to fight them. And then what happens? People you know, die, people a lot die. die, you know, and then nothing will be achieved because yeah. you probably are not going to win against them, you know. And uh, a lot of the country will get destroyed. What if there's a problem, like the U.S. is coming in and saying, okay, Lebanon, we'll give you all this equipment, you need to take out Hezbollah, but that never works. That 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 is not gonna I mean, actually what you wanna do is if you or wanna get if you want if you wanna get rid of Hezbollah or you wanna get rid of any group that you know the people that are indigenous to that area should really want that to happen. Yeah. We should not be doing it because the United so States would like the us West to do it. To or France wants to do it or Israel wants to do it. Okay. Yeah. Uh you know, I mean the reality has got to stand on its own two feet and say, we wanna do this or we wanna do that. Yeah. That's what you're saying. Uh, yeah. And now at some point in time the regional situation will change in such a way that the Hezbollah power will be reduced and then they, you know, they will uh, uh, lose the need to basically be protecting themselves through weapons and so forth and, and might get reintegrated into and the society, society, you know. Because there's so a religious sect at the end of the day. Well, they no, will not say that they're religious sect, but that. almost 99.9% of the people in them are Shiite, you, are know, Shiite you know. But they don't say that we are Shiite, you know, we, 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 Hezbollah doesn't say that I'm a Shiite religion. I'm a political, you know, political. paramilitary organization. Okay. Wow. So, so much to unpack over there. Yes. Okay. Only if, things would be easy. Yeah. Things are, and things are, of course, you know, the U.S. is uh, can be massively dysfunctional. We've got our own problems too, and everyone's got the Everybody. everyone's got their problems. Okay. You do. Yeah. And it's just Lebanon seems like a sweet small country that it's just in a place where all these different actors are, you know, are doing things. And then you got like nine countries that can't control themselves. But I have to say, I mean, you were in Lebanon. Do you feel that there is a presence of Hezbollah in Lebanon? No. Did you feel that they are trying the to get people, Again, the only people I ever saw were, were the Lebanese military a little bit. And the UN. And the UN. I saw 30 UN vehicles in a, in a column going yeah. to the border. Yeah. So, I mean, I should say U.S. on it because we paid for it, but whatever. Probably. <laughs> probably. Uh, but I mean, you know, I mean, so Hezbollah stays out of the uh, yeah. uh, of the daily events in Lebanon. They yeah. they they don't parade with their weapons. No. They, they they they, you know, they're they're, you know, uh, it's like the. It's like the resistance movement in France during World War II. They yeah. they were integrated in society and they, you know, they, they hid. And then, you know, when they wanted to do a, 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 a military operation, they kind of huddled up at night and did whatever they needed to do. Uh, well, yeah. So, I, I again, yeah, I, 
I didn't. And it's that's what makes it. It's very weird, though, because they're there. OK, I want to ask you about the U.S. Embassy. So the U.S. Embassy in, in Lebanon is currently under construction. It's been developing and under construction, I guess, since 2015. It sits on its own hilltop on 43 acres, contains multiple story uh, buildings, recreational space, swimming pools, offers unrestricted views of the capital. Um, a large part of the embassy is subterranean, so it's under in the mountains somewhere. Um, it's the most expensive U.S. embassy to date at a cost of $1 billion. I think it's going to be passed by the U.S. embassy they're building right now in Vietnam and Ho Chi Minh. Uh, but still, Lebanon is barely, as you said, a country of 6 million people. Uh, and now it's at a level four do not travel by the U.S. State Department. Why are we building such an enormous embassy there? It's going to be done soon, too, I guess. Uh, yeah, probably the U.S. Embassy in Lebanon is going to be the biggest structure we have in Lebanon. Uh, it is amazing. It's a fortress. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm hoping that it's going to be used as a headquarters for, you know, whatever we intend to do in the Middle East. And as a result of having such a huge embassy, they'll send a lot of personnel and they'll yeah. get to spend a lot of money in Lebanon. And that will help us yeah. kind of rebuild our economy. So uh, what the United States intends to do with that, you know, uh, is anybody's guess. Uh, I just uh, hope that like it a, is one. Like a military base or something? No. Okay. Maybe I, 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 I can assure you that there are a lot of military people, a, a lot of formal military uh, maybe I shouldn't say that on on the air. There is a lot of special forces in Lebanon today training the Lebanese army in US Lebanese barracks. U.S. special forces. Don't worry, we're not, this is not a famous podcast. Well, you know, maybe that should be, uh, you know. That's a good line. Okay, remove it so it becomes, you know. Because you're, con you're well-connected. And I will say, Here. Khalil could have ordered up the Lebanese military if we needed him to. Couldn't you have? No, you course. said you could have. No. I had to make you feel good. Okay. Now, see, you were vamping. I think it's true, though. That does kind of bring us to the end. Uh, I do have some songs of the week. I'll just do quickly. One is a Lebanese artist, um, Dale by Like Mike and Eden Shalev. Every Step by D.O.D. No Butterfly by Crazy Town. Remember to listen to any of these songs that were featured today on the pod or um, to find any that have been played here. Just search WAG playlist on Spotify for the show's playlist. That's about four hours, 10 minutes long now. Every time we release an episode, this playlist is updated. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to The World According to George, available anywhere you find podcasts. Remember to sh follow Chicago underscore pod on Instagram and DM me anything that's on your mind, relationship problems, restaurant picks, or you just want to visit a new hotel and review it on the pod. I do want to say thank you to Halil Mata for, for doing this. Uh, he didn't have to. He took his time on a Sunday to be here with us. And again, thank you for for your just amazing job you did with me me and my family hey listen thank you for inviting me i really appreciate you give me a chance to give my views on lebanon on, on what's happening currently in the situation and for your interest in kind of getting to know more about you know what's going on in the homeland so yeah. it's great to, to learn and try to understand this this thing that's been going on for so long but you're such a sweet man we love you and um i'll see everyone right here uh next week everybody have a great week thank you again well appreciate it Thank you.
Subscribe to WAG now and find out what George will sound off about next. New episodes drop every other Thursday anywhere podcasts are available.